0: Well, one of the things that we're sort of picking up again is uh, as we've gone through Romans, we have ended up finally at Romans 16, so we're on the final track on that. But obviously Romans 16 talks about, includes several women in the whole uh, avenue of ministry, Phoebe being one of them, and we've talked a little bit about her role and relationship. Uh, See, uh, in some ways, hopefully the value of uh, women in terms of God's purpose and plan and ministry We did earlier, uh, or previously in December, we talked about um, Eve and Mary and how they sort of become significant bookends in God's redemptive plan. And we wanna pick it up again this morning by sort of starting off giving you the big picture framework for some of the things that we need to deal with. Obviously, one of the things that's affecting the church is what does equality really look like in, in the church for men and women? And so that's uh, sort of rippling through most churches these days in terms of, well, do, can women be pastors and elders and leaders in that fashion? What does it look like? And so depending on your background, you'll have very different thoughts about how we think about it. This morning we want to deal with it, uh, in, as I said, in a big framework sense, but you better buckle up because if you're taking notes, I might even encourage you to forget about it because I don't think you'll be able to keep up. Uh, You might have to uh, um, go back and watch it again as we sort of think through the implications of this, but there's an enormous amount of material to work through and we will try to not make it sound like an academic exercise. Uh, I wanna begin actually in Galatians chapter three verse 28 and 29. This becomes sort of one of the foundational texts dealing, however you think about it, in terms of equality in the church. The text is very simple, for as many as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring and heirs according to the promise. And so as we begin this process, this becomes a really foundational text, and we're gonna come back to this several times over the next several weeks to understand the significance and the implications of it. And um, I'm gonna try to present this as we go through the next several weeks in a way that uh, you may know what I'm thinking or how, what my position is on it, and hopefully you won't. Because uh, I, I want you to struggle with the text and try to think through the implications of it. I will certainly do my due diligence in trying to present what the texts say not what Brad thinks, uh, because ultimately that's the only thing that really matters. However, we all have our own glasses on and our own predispositions about how we think about scripture, and so how we take principles and how we look at the context and the culture all influences the way we come out on this. So um, what we'll do is we're gonna start on this one. Let me start with four proposals that come from this particular text so you sort of know what we're dealing with. I'll tell you ahead of time. There's some of these I agree with, some that I won't. I'm not gonna tell you which ones. I'm just gonna frame it so you understand uh, sort of the the key issues. So the first one that comes out of this one in Galatians chapter three is that God created Adam and Eve equal in every sense of the word. Equality encompasses both their sense of being uh, created in the image of God and their sense of purpose. So we're gonna go back to Genesis this morning and we're gonna take a look at this and try to understand a little bit of the nature of what equality looks like in Genesis. Um, And so that becomes sort of the foundation. And so I won't deal with every argument that could possibly include it here, but this is where it begins, at least in the New Testament, And it forces us to go back and look at the Old Testament. But this is one of the principles, is that men and women were created in God's image and were given a common purpose, so there's equality in who they are, they have the same value before God, and they've been given the same purpose. And so they're working on the same kind of thing, and therefore the argument is they have the same responsibilities. So why would we start making distinctions about what men and women can do when it comes to certainly New Testament practice? The second one is this, that the fall, Adam and Eve's sin, particularly, created the problem of patriarchal dominance where the man rules over the woman. And this comes pretty much from Genesis chapter three to the uh, woman, God said, and this, we'll come to this later as I, I'm just mentioning it now, But to the woman, God said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. So the argument is, is this is where this dominance of men having this position to uh, dominate over the woman and she has to be submissive to him started. And because it comes after the fall, it it is a creation of fallenness. And therefore... Uh, it's, in a sense, reflecting of a sinful condition, not necessarily a created condition. The argument will will add to it as we go. Um, So the question then becomes, is this a mode of existence or simply a circumstantial result of what's going on? Um, But again, the key issue here is that this idea that men are supposed to rule and women are to submit in a subordinate relationship is really a result of Adam and Eve's sin. Uh, The third element here is that since male domination over women has resulted from the fall, Galatians 3.28 indicates that in Christ, God restores equality between men and women from the original creation. So that's the typical argument, is that they were created equal, they have the same sense of equal responsibility and purpose and therefore the fall has wrecked that, but when we come back in Christ, he now eliminates it because the text says that. There's no such thing as male or female anymore. So therefore, there shouldn't be any distinctions that we have either in who they are or how they function within the framework of a church. So it not only reverses the problems of the fall, but hopes to restore how God created men and women in Genesis chapter 1 and 2 as we're going to look at. The fourth one then, or the proposal, is equality eliminates distinctions between male and female before God in salvation, but this must also affect our ecclesiology, which is a fancy word of how we do church, how we structure and how we organize and who gets to be leaders and who doesn't. And so the idea here is that men and women are also functionally equal as well as created or have a sense of being as being equal. So those are the four that are really become cornerstones in the argument, I won't tell you again which ones I agree with or disagree, that's the issues that we tend to be dealing with in terms of how does this affect who we are as human beings. So the uh, other elements that come into this, and we won't get into them today, is that when people look at the New Testament, one of the arguments is, is that leadership is actually quite a- uh, ambiguous. There's no really clear thought about leadership in the New Testament and because it's ambiguous, then we can't keep perpetuating old models of leadership that really aren't that effective and really sort of look at it from a prejudicial perspective. Um, So that's what we're gonna deal with. Now there is a quote that I took from Gordon Fee's book on the whole idea of discovering biblical equality that comes from Alice Matthews and she says this, The biblical text one chooses for one starting point in the study of doctrine or issues in scripture becomes the lens through which one looks at all other texts. If, for example, an interpreter chooses 1 Timothy 2.12 as the starting point, which is a verse that says, women are to be silent in the churches, they are not to teach or exercise authority over men, is the framework, Uh, then she says, then all other texts will be evaluated and interpreted consciously or unconsciously in light of Paul's restrictive statement. that there are certain roles that women are not supposed to have in the church. Then she makes this proposal. On the other hand, if Galatians 3.28 is chosen as the starting points, texts such as 1 Timothy 2.12 will be read with Paul's declaration of no distinctions. Now I would agree with her is that where you start makes a difference. So that's why I'm not starting with either one of these. Because the problem is, is we all do the same thing. I, I'll do the same thing, you'll do the same thing. Everybody tends to read it from what they, their proclivity or their leanings are in terms of understanding the text. So the only way to start this is not to start with Galatians 3.28 and not to start with 1 Timothy 2 but to go back to Genesis chapter one and two and find out what does equality even begin to look like when we look at the original text on how God created things. So, if you're not disagreeable to that, that's where we're going this morning, and I think it's the best place for us to start. So, without turning this into a four-hour seminar, let me try to shortcut a few of the things that I think we would all agree with, and then try and try to paint some pictures about how we start thinking through this issue. Uh, as you probably note, I'm not going to give any final answers today, but I am going to try to provoke your thinking to think about the nature of role of men and women when God started things back in Genesis. So Genesis 1, 26 and 27 is where God says, let us make man in our image, and he created them male and female, and he created them in his image. So there's three statements that I think should be fairly common ground for us. Men and women are created equal before God. I don't know anyone who has an evangelical framework that would disagree with that statement. Um, You do get some interesting nuances when you talk to people, but I think everyone would agree that we're created in the image of God and that makes us equal. So secondly, that men and women have equal value before God. And so that, again, becomes a reflection of how God created men and women, uh, Adam and Eve. And thirdly, men and women are unique in their own way because God created them to be different yet compatible. So as you think about this, I want you to, it, and again, we don't have time for this discussion, but when you think about image of God, it's everything that makes us different from the animals and everything else on the planet. Uh, you'll run into certain people that will have uh, a propensity to judge us because we have what they might call a species elitism, that we think we're better than animals and trees and other kinds of things. Well, I think I could make a pretty good argument that we are, but that doesn't mean we ought to neglect God's creation, or animals, or abuse what God has given to us. And so whether you call it global warming issues or just stewardship of how we're we're gonna see that God has entrusted to men and women this responsibility, this divine purpose, as we're gonna see, to look after what he has created. So the idea is, is that this becomes the framework. But when it comes to the image of God, men and women are different. I don't think that was different for Adam and Eve. I think when God created Eve, she was a helper, a partner that was compatible or certainly fit and suitable for Adam, but she was unique in her own way. So for example, just to understand where I'm coming from, I think both, any individual reflects the image of God. But men and women sort of reflect the glory of the image of God in its fullest expression. literally, there's in a sense, that the whole is greater than the sum of the parts. If I take a concept, for instance, like kindness, as part of God's image and how it's reflected in human beings, I could make the argument that women tend to show kindness better than men. Now, that's a bit of a stereotype, but if I watch a football game, the guys aren't really showing kindness to one another. Every once in a while, a guy from one team will help the other guy up, but they're out to knock each other's heads off, and they enjoy that because guys are wired like warriors in some respects. Um, And and so when you think about kindness, you'd often think about, well, women often show kindness to things, uh, to people, uh, to whatever it is, in ways that are different than men, not necessarily better, but they, they seem to master that ability better than men do sometimes. Doesn't mean we can't. I discovered that when you go back and visit your first granddaughter. You can sit and show lots of kindness to this bundle, little squirty bundle of life and uh, say weird things to entertain yourself and entertain a baby. And so guys can show kindness in lots of different ways that are just maybe comparable to the way women do it. They just maybe do it more intuitively and in many ways we might say better than what men would on an average basis. So it's not really right or wrong, it's just God creates us differently and that's reflected differently in the way that men and women often function. But it doesn't mean one is short of any characteristic or any aspect of God's image. They reflect it equally. So these are sort of the starting points in terms of what I would call equality in terms of creation. The other other concept here in terms of the big picture is God gives them an eternal purpose. Now you see this in Genesis one, you'll also pick it up again in Genesis two, but it'll say that God gave them an equal purpose. Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Subdue the earth and have dominion over every living thing as you look at Genesis chapter one. And then God makes equal provisions for them. He doesn't give certain kinds of things for man to eat and because the woman is gluten free, she eats a whole other different set of kind of things that are going on. They didn't have quite those kinds of issues back then, nothing wrong with that, but it's just that God made equal provision for them in terms of life, and it was giving you plants bearing seed and fruit from the trees, you can help yourself to all of it, uh, as we know that God's gonna make one restriction, and we'll deal with that probably next week more in detail. But this is where equality comes in. And one of the arguments that equality shouldn't have any role distinction is, well, they were created equal, they have equal value, and God gave them this mission, this purpose, together, because it tells us in the text, he told them to go and bear fruit, uh, or be fruitful and multiply and exercise dominion over the earth and the animals and subdue it. And so that becomes the argument is, well, there was no role distinctions in terms of what they were doing. Now, um, again, we won't get into the weeds on all this today, but let me try to uh, frame some other things that are with it. That particular divine purpose, I categorize three different ways, and you can express this a lot of different ways. I hope this is helpful. One is to colonize the planet. I mean that's basically what God is saying. If you're gonna be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth, it's colonizing it. It's taking it over, it's filling it up, it's in a sense subduing and dominating both the earth and the animals and, and looking after it. The, the, the problem with words like subdue and dominate is they sort of have this sort of flavor of enslaving something. I mean literally the word dominate has been controversial because it sort of says make it your slave. We think of that very negatively, but I think the other two components of this divine purpose help soften that in our thinking, or it should. Because the second part of this is to cultivate the ground. Uh, We're going to see that God created Adam and he stuck him in the garden to cultivate and care for it. Even when there weren't any weeds or thorns or things growing up, God still wanted him to cultivate it. So it's kind of like, well, what's there to do if there isn't weeds? Like, I mean, what do you have to do to take care of it? Well, I I think the basic premise is God saying, I'm giving you permission to discover and develop the resources that I've built into this planet. I, I want you to look after it. You are now individuals who are stewards of what belongs to me. And that's an important element as we move through this. The final one is I'll call it caretakers. So subdue has to do with the resources in the earth, caretaking is the idea where they are to dominate, have dominion is over animals and beasts and flying things and fish. That's related to those kinds of life forms as it were that are part of creation. So they're to colonize it, they are literally to cultivate it and they're to be caretakers of it and be stewards and custodians of the things that God has given. Now on all of that I would say yeah, that's the equal, that's the equality. God created them with equal value in the image of God. He's given them divine purpose. They're supposed to own it. So then the question is, well, why is there distinctions at all? Well, you don't get to a lot of that until you hit chapter two. And I believe chapter two is coming down to saying, all right, that's the big picture. How did God actually do this? And you'll actually see in chapter two a different process. If you read just chapter one, it was like, okay, there's Adam, there's Eve, Here's the deed. Go out, be fruitful, multiply, subdue the earth, and do it, and they automatically know what's going on. But when you look into chapter two, you see there's an order of specific events that take place. And we won't get into all the details, but in 2.15, God creates Adam first. And what God's gonna do is that there's certain things that are gonna unfold in this. God placed Adam in a garden to cultivate and keep it, and Eve isn't here yet. So, God is doing something in terms of relationship to to Adam, and He's giving him responsibilities already, and Eve isn't on the scene. And so that becomes the first thing we need to note. God commands Adam to not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and because He warns them in the day that you eat of it. So, this is another part of the piece that goes on, and Eve is still not on the scene and then God plans on making a helper for Adam so he is not alone and somebody who is best suited to help him fulfill God's purpose that he's given. So God's created Adam first, and he goes through this process of his commitment, and I'll explain sort of the details that I believe goes on there at this point, but um, there is a gap between when Eve shows up and when God, God creates Adam, and there's activity that takes place between God and Adam that I think is meaningful, that we need to sort of take note of what's going on. In chapter two, verse 15 of Genesis, it says this. The Lord took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work and keep it, and the Lord God commanded the man, saying, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat it, for in the day that you eat it you shall surely die. The other text that I think is noteworthy is chapter two, verse 18 and 19. Then the Lord God said, and and this is is a weird text, frankly, because God says this, it's not good for the man to be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. And then it jumps right into, now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. I'm kind of going, what does that have to do with getting a helper for Adam? Like, what... What is the purpose of that? I mean, why would God do that? Well, I believe this is a preparation process that God is taking Adam through. I don't think it's meaningless. In fact, I don't think God is saying, well, listen, Eve's not here yet, so I need to sort of just keep you busy doing something until I get you both here, and then I can get you on the same page. I don't think God is creating a hobby for Adam so that he's got something to do for a while until Eve shows up. I I don't think he's just distracting him until Eve comes along. Now Eve is indispensable to the process. I, I would probably say at this point, I don't think she's that important to the process because God already has Adam doing something. And I don't think they're just wasting time. What I believe is happening is that God is starting to teach and train Adam about what it means to fulfill his mission to subdue the earth and, and exercise dominion over it. We don't have much details of the first one, but literally the Lord took the man and put him in the garden uh, to work or to cultivate it and keep it. I, I would call this on-the-job training. I, you know, we sort of say, well, God created Adam and he must have been a genius, and so he just sort of looks at it and goes, okay, I know what to do. I, I don't see that. I think God is trying to teach Adam what this responsibility is going to entail. I think when he puts it down there, God um, wants Adam to take responsibility for it. He needs to own this responsibility, and so God is showing him what it's gonna take. And he's bringing him along so that when he does bring a helper, he knows where he's going. There's nothing worse than having two people put together. It's like, you know, we talked to a, a... she was in her 20s, a roommate of my uh, daughter when they were in university and she came to visit us not because she was, well she came to visit us because she was coming to visit us but my daughter left a Christmas present for her so (laughs) she was after the present kind of thing. And so she's in nursing but we had asked her, she just made the comment, I'm not sure this is what I want to do. And so we typically asked her, said what do you want to do? And she goes, I don't know. I mean I hear that a lot from people especially kids that are around my kids' age, it's kind of like, what do you want to do? I don't know. What would you like to do? I don't know that either. I'm just not really super jazzed about what I'm in right now, so I might want to do something else. Well, the last thing that God needs is have Adam created, and he doesn't know what's going on, and bring Eve along and say, what are we doing? And he goes, I don't know. <laughs> what, what, what do you mean you don't know? Like, you know, Somebody got me here. I'm supposed to be your part. What are we doing? I don't know. That just doesn't seem to go over. That doesn't make much sense to me. And so what God is doing is he's training and teaching Adam how to subdue the earth uh, by tending to the garden, to discovering and developing the resources that exist in it. And he's taking him through this process uh, at the same time when he comes to name the animals. I think he's doing exactly the same thing. He's teaching him how to take, for lack of a better term, both the responsibility and the leadership to really own and put his fingerprints on this mission that God has given to him and that God will give to them, but God wants him to know what he's doing before he brings Eve along. So the idea becomes this process where God is doing all this on-the-job training because we gotta remember, God still owns everything. And so the way I want you to think about this is that when God owns it, but he's giving permission, and he's trying to encourage and empower Adam to own this mission, and he's doing this on-the-job training so he knows what he's doing, and he's able to help Eve understand what they're doing when she comes along. I think it makes perfect sense in relationship to what's going on. But we have to remember that God is giving him permission to do it. This is God's stuff, not Adam's. And so literally Adam is going to live under God's authority and the, only, and the reason for that is that only God can give him the right to do what he's going to do. He's not taking that right to himself. He doesn't feel, he's not entitled to it. But God says, I'm giving you permission and I'm empowering you and teaching you what that responsibility is going to look like. And so Adam's engaged in this and it involves the two things, the two primary things, and that is to subdue the earth to dominate the the creatures, and both those show up in this discussion. It's just odd to us when he starts talking about, I'm gonna find a helper for you, and now we're gonna go off naming animals. Well, I think God does this for a couple of reasons in terms of what's going on. Now, I won't go back over the text, which says it's not good for a man to be alone here, but the text is there so that you can see that what God does is kind of interesting. Naming the animals forces Adam to put his fingerprints on it and own the responsibility, but then God says, uh, he creates these animals, or has created them, and then he brings them to Adam to see what he will name them. And I think this is the way God is preparing Adam, for lack of better, to take leadership, so that when he gives Eve, he's not going, I don't know, I don't know what I'm doing, I don't know what we're doing and he's supposed to take responsibility for this. So the issue is, is when God starts saying, I wanna give you a helper, what is he talking about? Well, frankly for me, it raises several questions. What would a helper who is suitable for Adam look like? I don't mean physically, but obviously it's not the animals, so what kind of character do they need? What kind of responsibility? What role will that person play if they're really gonna be a helper? Um, How will Adam know what that helper is to be doing We've kind of covered that. If Adam doesn't know what he's doing, then it's gonna just turn into a mess when Eve shows up. And finally, what's the nature of Adam's relationship with this helper? And so this becomes sort of the way that God is preparing both Adam and Eve to fulfill this sense of mission and what's gonna happen. Now the nature of helper literally means helper. It means to be an assistant. It's really difficult to get around that particular term. Um, but God is going to specifically train Adam so that he will know what to do uh, when God provides this helper. So the provision is this, Genesis tw- uh, chapter two, Eve was created for Adam to help Adam. I could go back into 1 Corinthians 11 where that's part of Paul's argument. Adam was created, woman wasn't created first, Adam was created first, and Adam wasn't created for Eve, but this is the language, he says Eve was created for Adam. And it comes back to this very text where Eve was created for the purpose of helping Adam with this mission. And it literally means an assistant. Um, so the question is, is what does that mean? Does that mean she's subordinate to him and that he has authority over her? Or what language do we use to describe this? I mean, we've already looked at Genesis 3 where it says, well, you're going, your desire is for your husband, but he's gonna rule over you. Same word, dominate over you. Well, is that biblically healthy, or is that just the crisis of the fall? Well, we'll get into it, but the assumption that I want to work from in this part is to assume that this means that Adam is to take leadership role, and as God designated for Eve, she's to be the helper. So whether you think about that as subordinate or not, to me isn't the issue. He is being trained to take the lead She is a helper that is to help him accomplish what God has put in front of them. So don't use the word subordinate. Don't use the word he's to rule because that shows up in, so that might be a challenge for you because that's the way we tend to think of this. You know, we, we can even classify it further. Do you think of headship and submission? Well, those terms aren't used. You Nowhere know, in Genesis 1 or 2 does it use, actually use the word headship or submission, so we're left to see how God is operating here to figure it out. For now, I'm gonna talk about leadership and helper. The assumption that I wanna do for the moment is to say, let's say that if he's taking the leadership, then he has to help her understand what God wants, and he needs to provide and protect her, and that for the sake of our discussion, Let's say it's a subordinate role. Now, God creates Eve so that Adam will not be alone. It's that issue there is not that he won't be, he'll, he won't be lonely. God, he has fellowship with God, so he's not lonely. He's not like, you know, I can talk to the giraffe here all day long, but I'm not getting anything here. That's not what we're talking about. We're to, he can fellowship with God and interact with God, so he's not lonely, but he is alone. And so at the heart of this, God, I think, is gracious and generous, to one, to say, you don't have to be on your own on this. I mean, you, God has he has God, but Adam's a human being, and so it's the helper God's gonna create for him is someone who is perfectly suited to help him in lots of different ways. And so what does it mean? Well, does equality in being and sharing equality in the objective or the mission of subduing the earth and dominating it require equality in roles and relationships or in responsibility. I think the term here for what we're dealing with is going to raise a couple of questions. What does the word helper mean? Well, there's a quote that comes from Richard Hess out of um, Biblical Equality and I wanna read it for you. It says the designation of the woman as helper corresponding to the man, in Genesis 2, has evoked much discussion. Klein's represents traditional, he's referring to a different uh, commentator, a traditional thinking where he argues that the word ezer, which is the Hebrew word for helper, must refer to someone who is in a subordinate position. Then he says, he dismisses the evidence of many occurrences in the Bible in which God is a helper for Israel or for an individual who appeals to him. Such example leaves no doubt that azir or helper can refer to anyone who provides assistance, whatever their relationship is to the one who needs the aid. Now, let me give you a couple of exegetical facts. 21 times in the Old Testament, the word Izir is used. It is used in a sense of referring to help. Uh, Two times it's referred to uh, Eve becoming a helper for Adam. Sixteen times it's used of God helping Israel, or one of God's people crying out for him to be a helper. Um, The other three times talks about failures of people helping one another, so it's not necessarily relevant to the discussion. But the question would be, as we're thinking about it, is that, well, okay, does that argument solve the problem? And actually, for me, it doesn't. Because the point is, is if you're going to make a statement that it refers to someone helping someone else regardless of what their relationship is or their roles or responsibility, doesn't do anything if I suggest that Eve is subordinate to Adam. Okay, if it refers to anybody, she could still be subordinate to Adam and help him, but does the fact that it refer to God helping Israel say, oh, well, it can't be someone who is subordinate because God isn't subordinate to anybody. Well, you could look at it that way in the sense of saying, well, obviously, being a helper doesn't mean she's subordinate because God helped Israel. Or you could say the fact that God is the only one who can help Israel because he's in a covenant relationship with them and they're not to look to the other nations for help, they're not to look to themselves for help, but to keep them on a spiritually focused game plan God is the only one who can properly help Israel stay on track. In fact, if it is a subordinate role, what it tells me is that God actually elevates the role of Eve in this relationship because it compares her to what God was doing for Israel. In fact, it refers to God in the most unique way of helping Israel that nobody else could do. And so a helper that is perfectly suited to Adam is somebody who takes on a role that's similar to what God did with Israel because Adam needs that kind of helper. And so I don't think it does anything, this argument, to suggest that this doesn't apply. So let me give you four things to think about in terms of this idea of being a helper. The first thing is if we work with the assumption that Adam is to be a leader in this and she's to be helping him, The the appeals that God is a helper and therefore it doesn't apply, I think is irrelevant. I I think it misses the point of what the person's trying to make. It doesn't mean the person always has to be in a role that's subordinate, but it doesn't eliminate that someone who is in a subordinate position can't be a helper in the way that God helped even Israel. I think it elevates the role to be significant. Secondly, God's example of helping Adam would demonstrate to, to him what this helper ultimately ought to be. Now you might say, well, what do you mean, his, his example? Well, I don't understand that. Well, remember with the name, naming the animals thing, let me ask you this question. Do you think God and Adam are equals? It's not a trick question. No, I, I know that's what I do, but that's not a trick question. Adam is not equal to God in any way, shape, or form. And the reason I mention that is because, well, why in the world is God going to this tedious process of getting Adam to name all the animals? I mean, it'd be way faster, unless God's not smart enough to do it, that God just names the animals and say, here, look, here's the animals, this is what you call them. God could have even done this. Listen, I want you to follow my example. I'll name the first animal, you get to name the second one. Well, that would make sense to me. But God doesn't do that. What does he do? God makes the animals. We're told that he made all the animals. And then what does he do? God brings the animals to Adam. And then he lets them. It literally says, because God is watching to see what Adam would name each of the animals. Why? Well, because he's trying to teach Adam how to take responsibility for what it means to exercise dominion over the earth. And God literally is being an example of a helper for Adam, even though the word's not used there. He's God's superior in ever since, but he takes this mode and role as a helper for Adam because he wants Adam to empower him to fulfill the mission. It's not God's mission for himself. It's Adam's and Eve's mission in the world. And so he says, listen, I'm gonna give you this responsibility. This is a big one because you're naming animals. Now that seems silly to us, but it's pretty significant. You should try to see what parents name their first child. I mean, now if you've ever had to name a child, you know how difficult this is, right? But God takes this mode of being Adam's helper so that Adam goes, oh okay, I know what, I, I know what this sort of looks like so that when you finally give me a helper, I understand how they're, we're supposed to work together. And I think that's exactly why God does it is so that he'll value the helper he's ultimately going to give to him. And so as he begins to work through this process, God has trying to empower and entrust Adam with this mission. He's trying to train him and to teach him what his responsibility is and then he models for him what a helper is supposed to do without taking over and and because Eve is going to need some help. It doesn't just say, here's Eve, and she goes, okay, I get it. I think, I think Adam is going to have responsibilities to work with Eve and say, okay, here's what God's mission is. Here's how we need to work together. And I can help you learn what that looks like. Now, you might say, well, did they have to do, what did they have to do when it came to be fruitful and multiply? Well, some things come easier than others, Right? But I think it's important for us to recognize the, the nature of this. Now there's only one, and I'm really gonna be cautious about this one because, actually I'm still thinking it through, and, uh, but the only other analogical comparison I can see what God did here um, is what Jesus did with his disciples. Remember he trained and taught them, did on the job training about what it means to live by faith and to follow Jesus. He did it for three and a half years and he says, okay, like I'm done and I'm leaving, I'm gonna send you another helper to teach you and to empower you to fulfill the mission that I've called you to do. Now the problem with using that analogy is like for men and women, it's easy for us to get a God complex about how significant we are, and there's, in some respects, very little comparison between anything you I would do, whether we're men or women, and what the Spirit of God is doing to empower the church. But what it does is tell us that Eve is so significant to the future of the mission that I think there's something analogous to the fact that God did on-the-job training with Adam, then he said, look it, I'm not, literally, I'm not the perfect match for him to fulfill this mission, so I'm, not, I'm stepping out and I'm gonna give you another helper that's so significant I think it's somewhat analogous, although you gotta be really careful with this, to what Jesus did in, in sending the Holy Spirit to empower the church to fulfill the mission that God had for them, that Christ commanded them to. Now that one takes a little thought and you have gotta re- hold that one with an open hand in terms of the relationship to it. But what it does is, it ele- if this is a subordinate role, it elevates it to significance that we don't even appreciate. That her role is absolutely indispensable. It's different from Adam's, but it's just as vital if they're gonna fulfill this mission. One of the perfect examples that you can be equal but have different roles and responsibilities and it's not demeaning is be fruitful and multiply. You do notice, and this may won't bother most of you, but it could bother somebody. When God created a helper, it wasn't Bob. Now, he could have created another man where they could have put their entrepreneurial, engineering, architectural skills together and and just built an infrastructure that would discover and develop the resources of the earth in spades. And they could have been profoundly successful at that at least for 30 years until they die. But the idea is, as part of the mission is be fruitful and multiply. Now, I'm not the smartest person on the block, but I'm, when I look at be fruitful and multiply, I see that Adam has a particular role in that, and Eve has a very different role in that. It's really hard to take those roles on. They can't switch places. It doesn't work. And so as part of this... I think we need to see both by God's example and the other things that take place is that if this is talking about a subordinate role between Adam and Eve, it is not a demeaning thing to Eve to say that you're gonna be the helper because I think demonstrated by God's example and I think demonstrated by other things that are in the text that this is just as significant even though the role and responsibility is different. Same mission, but you have to have different roles and responsibilities to, to make it work. You can't have everybody doing the same thing or it ultimately will fail. And so the the heartbeat of this comes back to equality in creation, in their sense of being. They have equal value. They're on exactly the same mission and they're to do it together. But it would seem to me that when God creates Adam first, he teaches and trains him how to take the leadership role because he doesn't want to be going when Eve comes along what do you want to do? And he goes, I don't know. And we'll see next week, I mean, the, f- the first three of these messages, we're dealing with Genesis two, 1 and 2, Genesis 3, 1 through 7 next week, and then we'll jump into the rest of chapter 3 next week. These are so length that I really encourage you to figure out some way to put them all together because they're really vital to the process of understanding what's going on here. And I'm gonna talk about some things next week that I can pretty much guarantee you won't see in a commentary that I think Uh, really has, opens up Genesis 3 for us in a way that you probably haven't thought of. But the idea here is that God doesn't operate on the same basis that we do. We live going, well, if we're equal, everything has to be equal. I don't think God operates that at all. Everybody in their own way is indispensable. They're absolutely vital, and I think God shows by his example and what he does that women are absolutely indispensable. And I think even subduing the earth and exercising dominion, she's just as indispensable as bearing fruit and multiplying, except we don't value that. Because the fact is, there's no way that God knows, God knows absolutely for sure that Adam will never be successful in fulfilling the mission unless he gives a, a, a partner that's perfectly suited to help that happen. Now, before some of you think you've already got me figured out and where I'm landing on this, yeah, don't hold your breath yet. Because we're going to step into this and try to get into the weeds where we're going to sort of really explore the implications of what Galatians 3 talks about as well as the things that we're seeing even in this context. If you think you've got it figured out, I'm trying to force you to maybe rethink some of your assumptions. And that becomes part of the process of what we need need to discover together. Father, thank you for your love. I think the starting point has to be Genesis or we'll never figure this out. And I would ask that you would give us wisdom and insight and an openness to learn things maybe that we think we've already had figured out but maybe not. I pray that you will help us discover the reality of of what your word says, not just in Genesis, but what it means when we hit the New Testament and talk about equality there. And pray that as we venture through this together that you will open our hearts to the power of your presence in each of our lives, in men and women, how we can continue to find ways to empower what you want to do in our lives and not just what our expectations are. Thank you for your word. Thank you for the challenge that we're on and pray that you'd Help us to allow your spirit to continue to keep teaching us and we thank you in Christ's name, amen. Amen.